The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Today I ask you to turn with me to Romans 3, one of the most, certainly the most epic chapters of the Bible, Romans 3, as I'm going to read a summary section as Paul winds up the great argument about mankind in in sin, lost in sin, and then presents the salvation of God. We're doing this because we mark today as Reformation Sunday. Maybe that's unfamiliar to some of you. I remind you that October 31st is something other than Halloween. October 31st of 1517 is the stroke that really began some things when Martin Luther threw down the gauntlet of challenge to the church of his day to discuss and explore the biblical meaning of true salvation. Luther didn't single-handedly start the Reformation, but he was a very important figure, and we look at that almost as the, if you want to call it, the shot heard around the world of the Reformation. 495 years ago, someone said to me, oh, it's almost 500 when they heard me say that in the first service. They said, we'll have to have a party in 2017. I said, you're the chairman of the committee. And that would be a real good idea, to have a 500th anniversary party five years from now if the Lord tarries and allows us to experience that. Listen to his word as I read Romans 3, starting at 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is God's holy word. Father, help us to hear this almost as if we could be reading it with new ears today. Help us to be thankful for the glorious truth of your salvation in Jesus' name. Amen. In the city of Geneva, Switzerland, where 
significant Reformation events took place. Near the University of Geneva, there's a monument to the Protestant Reformation. Some of you, perhaps if you have even been there, but many have probably seen pictures of these larger-than-life great granite uh, sculptings of various key leaders of the Reformation. And chiseled as an insignia beneath the feet of those leaders at that monument are three Latin words, post tenebras lux, after darkness, light. Five centuries ago, the Christian faith had become shrouded in the dark gloom and almost night of human superstition, false worship, and ignorance of the word of God. The Reformation occurred as one of the great turning points in all of history. And yet today, many people would shrug it off and say, well, that's something I guess that if you're a Protestant, you, you think that's important. And there are even people who say, well, that's not something to be celebrated. That's actually a, a bad time in history. It was a negative time because it stressed how people were different and it divided the Christian faith. And by the way, they would add, af- after all, you know, uh, all Christians think the same thing today about the doctrines that the Reformation was struggling about, and that shows a horrible ignorance of a true situation. All Christians certainly do not think alike on these truths. One thing the Reformation brought light upon, brilliantly flooding Europe with the light of God, was to hold up Scripture and say for the first time, or at least the first time in many long centuries, the Bible and the Bible alone is our authority in everything we need to know about God. Now, to us, that's fundamental, but it sure wasn't five centuries ago. And people were dwelling in a, a, just like a dark fog. They, they had inherited superstitious practices. They went to worship relics, uh, you know, the toe bone of some saint or supposedly a piece of the true cross or something like that could, could draw a crowd to come and worship a foolish object. And people were guided by rules and regulations. Priests, in many cases, were not even hardly literate men to understand the Bible themselves. And people followed human dictates and marched along in lockstep to dogmas that had almost nothing whatsoever to do with the Bible. And all of a sudden, the Bible is rediscovered. The Bible gets translated into the languages of people, into German by Luther. Luther's translation of the Bible into German was so good that German Bibles today largely bear most of its imprint. It's been revised, of course, but, but much of what Luther did was done very well. And in other languages as well, English and French, people fought and some even had to give their lives. People had to die so that the Bible could be translated into English because the institutional church didn't want the people to read the Word of God. So rediscovering the authority of the Bible alone was a great thing to celebrate about the Reformation. But there's another thing that I want to put emphasis on this morning that brings me to this text in Romans 3, and that is the great doctrinal issue of the Reformation. The issue that we define by seeing that Salvation, in biblical terms, is by grace alone, 
through faith alone, in Christ alone. The doctrine of justification was really the battleground on which the Reformation locked swords with the institutional church. Luther and Calvin and many others had to say, look, look at what Scripture says salvation is. It's so very different from what you and the church are saying it is. It's the very heart of the New Testament gospel, and we've lost it. And the church just basically said, be quiet. We don't want to hear that. We won't listen to that. Here in Romans 3, 19 to 26, we have a classic definition of that very doctrine of justification, causing one wise Bible commentator on Romans to label our text. You would say maybe he's exaggerating, but here's what he said. He said, this is possibly the most important single paragraph ever written. The most important single paragraph ever written. That would be true if indeed it spells out, as we believe it does, the truth of how a sinful person is justified, that is, forgiven and freed from sin in the eyes of a holy God. Today I want to survey these verses by mainly asking a number of questions of it and seeing the answers that are here. The first question is this, who needs justification? There are some people who think the Reformation was just about cleaning up a lot of superficial nonsense or corrupt papacy or, or worship of Mary over the supremacy of Christ or something like that. Those were peripheral issues. They were important, but they were not the core. The core of the Reformation was about trying to grapple with the biblical meaning of the gospel. How can I, a guilty sinner, be eternally saved by a holy God? And the answer is justification. You need to see the case that Paul was building in Romans. You need to understand Romans, the structure of it, from at least from chapter 1, verse 18, right on through chapter 3, verse 20, Paul is building a relentless logical case for the fallenness of every man and woman, how we have rebelled against God, how it's impossible for us to please God in our very nature, how we have looked at the good things God has revealed and said, no, I will have it my way, until Romans 3 comes down to the case in verse 11 and says, no one is righteous, not even one, no one understands, no one seeks God, all have turned aside, and so on. And, and Paul just hammers these points out. And you cannot miss that he's indicting you along with everybody else that we are condemned. In fact, I see it, if you, if you see him painting a word picture and you come down to where I began to read, to verse 19, I think of this, I picture something in my mind when I read Romans 3.19. I picture billions upon billions of people all gathered before a judge's high seat. And the judge seated there at that bench is God. And billions of people stand before him accused of their sin and their unrighteousness. And every one of them is asked, defend yourself. Give an excuse. Tell me why you should not be judged. And every one of them has his hand clapped over his mouth because he cannot answer. Every mouth is stopped, it says. And the whole world held accountable to God. Nothing in all of the Bible is so grim as the conclusion reached there at Romans three nineteen and 20. Things are absolutely dark 
Not for a few people, but for everybody. Who needs justification? Everyone needs it, if this is correct. I need it. You need it. And yet not everyone who has sinned and needs it is going to find it. Because it comes to all who believe in the redemption God has provided in Christ. Well, the second question is this then. Why is justification said to be by grace alone? I give you this illustration. The Grand Canyon, I have never been there. I'm sure some of you have. I've seen the pictures. They're wonderful in themselves. The Grand Canyon is said to be about nine miles wide. What if somehow getting from where I am in my sin and condemnation to where God is in his perfect righteousness was equal to crossing from one side of the Grand Canyon to the other, and you couldn't drive in your car and just go around. You had to get across. What if that's what you had to do? You said, well, maybe somebody could, could, we could try. Let's see what we can do. And we'd go way back and we'd take a long running leap and we'd jump out as far as we could go towards the other side of the Grand Canyon. And maybe you would, you would get out there from the rim as much as 15 feet. And then you'd go one mile down, all the way down. What if somebody was a really good long jumper, a high school or college athlete, and they said, oh, I'm going to make a better effort, and I'll do better than you, and they shot out there 26 feet and then went one mile down and crashed to the bottom just as you did. Of course, nobody's going to leap the Grand Canyon. And you say, what a ridiculous thing. And yet it's just as ridiculous as the endeavor of any human man or woman or child who thinks that in his own righteousness, by his own effort, by his own striving, he's going to somehow get close enough to the perfect holiness of God. You might as well leap the Grand Canyon. Now, in 1517, Luther faced a particular monstrosity as far as spiritual things were concerned. Some of you know that he confronted what was really a building fund going on by the Church of Rome. They were building the, the great basilica in Rome and need a lot of cash for that. And various cardinals and bishops went throughout Europe and they said, look, folks, we're going to offer you something. This will really help you. It will either help your salvation or it will certainly help the salvation of people you know. Here's a piece of paper. It was called an indulgence. And if you paid a certain fee... And I guess there were indulgences of different costs that probably supposedly brought more benefit. You pay your fee, you get your piece of paper, and it says someone you know, someone you're praying for who has died, who is in purgatory, which, by the way, is a total fiction, nowhere found or supported by any scripture whatsoever. But someone in this false fictional place is going to be able to leap out of purgatory because you paid the fee. Here's a good work that you can do towards salvation. Luther was outraged. This was to him the the last straw. You know, bad enough to go and kiss a toe bone of a saint or, or worship a lock of hair from Mary or something, some ridiculous thing that he saw the church doing. He said, This is just absolutely false and unbiblical, and it's trying to tell people they can leap the Grand Canyon by a 10-foot jump. And Luther 
being a scholar of Scripture, which in itself was an amazing thing because not that many people were studying Scripture, as incredible as that seemed. Luther, by studying passages like Romans 3, passages like the whole book of Galatians, came and he said, look, wow, Eureka! It's absolutely different than the church is telling everybody. We are justified by the grace of God alone. By something God does, not by something we do. Something supernatural, because a natural jump is never going to get me across the Grand Canyon. Without supernatural assistance, there's no way I can go from this side to that side. But in God's power and God's working, the Scripture says... I can. And so justification in our terminology, and there are lots of complex discussions could be had about this discussion. You say, what is it anyway? Well, it's really quite simple. It's It's like a legal transaction in which my sin and my condemnation are taken from me and put upon Jesus, and Jesus' righteousness and perfection is taken from him and put upon me. That's justification. It's a two-way exchange. And God makes this thing to happen, not any work that I ever do. I don't just need a supplement, you know. You you say, well, you're doing pretty good with your works. You're almost there. God just needs to give you a little boost or something. You know, kind of like these energy drinks they have now. You know, well, you know, you just can't quite get enough energy to get through the app. I don't know what these things are. I've never tried them. But you supposedly you take this and super shot of caffeine and zoom, you know, you're, you're going to be a super worker all afternoon or something. Is that what we need? Just something to help out our works? Or do we need something absolutely different in which God says, look, I determine that because of what Jesus did in your place, I will judge you to be across that canyon on my side with the perfection of Christ fully upon you. My initiative, my power can do that. No power of yours ever will. God didn't just come in justification looking around and saying, where can I find the people who are doing a pretty good job morally? You know, they're almost making it. They really are looking good on the outside. And, you know, they're regarded as the leaders in their community. They're the moral folks who are most admired. I'll just take them and and just move them a little farther along and justify them. Not at all. When Luther approached justification, he said one time, no, God comes and takes those who are drenched in sin, foul, obnoxious, and deserving of nothing but his wrath, and through the grace of Christ, that person He declares to be righteous. And when God declares something to be true, you see, it is true. The same God who said, let there be light, and there was light. His word is powerful. If he declares you are just as if you had not sinned, you are. So there's this dimension of grace alone, God's initiative and God's power. But then the other dimension, thirdly, we ask the question, why is justification said to be in Christ alone. Well, it's because somebody has to put this whole thing into effect. You know, often we talk about the salvation from our sins as a pardon. God has pardoned me. Some of you may have a legal background and and you know what a pardon is. Most of us know a governor gives a pardon to somebody. 
pardons a man perhaps uh, who's ready to be executed. Or the president can pardon people who were having to, to uh, be under sentence. And much of the time, at least not always, a pardon comes even before the punishment has been started. Sometimes a pardon is given to somebody already in prison, but often it's before they even started to be, you know, somebody said, you're guilty, you have to go to prison. And then the pardon comes, no, you don't have to go to prison. Well, you see, justification is a little different than a pardon in that sense because it is granted only after the punishment had been completely delivered. But it wasn't delivered to you, it was delivered to Jesus Christ. He's the punishment bearer. He's the one who takes and pays the price of what is required for justification to happen. Here in our text, verse 24 says that we are justified freely by the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Redemption means buying, paying for, ransoming. Jesus himself said in Mark 10 that his death would be a ransom, a price paid for many. Peter wrote in his first epistle, 1 Peter 1.18, you were not redeemed, bought with corruptible things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Why is it in Christ alone? Because somebody has to pay. We're coming up within a couple weeks on the time of Veterans Day when we honor our military veterans. And we, we think again as we do at Memorial Day of those veterans who even died, who gave the great price of their lives. And we say things like, look, liberty for our country is free for us because so many have paid for it in the ultimate possible way. Well, that applies here. Jesus Christ was the one who paid. Justification had to be paid for. He bought a people, called his elect, his covenant people, the people from all ages who would be his own in eternity. And let me tell you, he didn't take that price out of the petty cash fund. He paid with his life. He paid with everything he had. So justification is by grace alone, in Christ alone. What did it accomplish then? What did justification accomplish? Well, Romans 3.25 unlocks it a little bit with a very key, important Bible word. We read here, God set forth Christ to be the propitiation through faith in his blood. Now, that's a big word. It's an important word. It's not a word we use in daily conversation or a word that most of us maybe even could define. But if you propitiate someone, you turn away their anger. They were angry at you, you turn the anger away. You dissolve it. Say there was a teenager with a big vocabulary who knows the word propitiation and wanted to show off. He could say to his friend, look, you know, last semester I got a D in math and my dad was mad and he grounded me. Now, this semester, I'm getting a B plus, and that will propitiate my father's wrath. I won't be grounded anymore. That's a proper use of that word, actually. And you know, in religious things, it goes back to the days when pagans thought of their gods as angry most of the time. Now, whatever god they had, the corn god, the thunder god, the god was angry. And, and you, you always had to kind of assume that the god was angry. That was wise to assume that. 
and therefore you brought things, your food or your lamb that you brought to his altar or something, because you had to appease the God and make him feel better, make him feel happy that you were doing something for him. And people have argued against the idea of propitiation here in saying, isn't that an unworthy idea of the God of the Bible to think that he's mad all the time? And we have to do something to please him? Well, if God was just mad all the time because he was temperamental, that would indeed be a wrong idea. But God's wrath, properly understood in the Bible, is his necessary reaction against wrongdoing, against evil, against sin. He is perfection itself. How can perfection react to utter rebellion against perfection? Except to be wrathful. If, God, if you want God to step down and resign as God, then he wouldn't have to have wrath anymore. But if he's going to be holy, if he's going to be righteous, he has to have an, a reaction of absolute revulsion to our sin. And so it's a right concept of the Bible to say, Jesus Christ paid with his life to turn away that wrath because now... A perfect substitute has been made for our great imperfection. Not long ago, I did something that I'm sure all of you have done at some time. I bought at a department store a relatively large box, not a box, but the item in the box I bought. And uh, I came to the register, you know, did my transaction, and the clerk said, oh, I don't have a bag anywhere near big enough for that. Of course, I had my receipt in my pocket, but I needed to walk out of the store, and I was at least as far as that door from the register to, you know, and who knows what security guard lurks between here and there, and here I am walking out with a great big box, and, you know, your mind says, am I going to get out of this store, or am I going to be intercepted by a, a big man who says, stop thief? So he put, the person at the register took the yellow sticky tape, put it around my package, and it said, paid for. Well, now I was doubly covered. I had the receipt in my pocket, I had the visible evidence on the box. I could walk out the door and not worry about a security guard. I was paid for. Folks, that's what we are in Christ. Justification, if you don't mind this lowly illustration, is the yellow sticky tape that says paid for. Paid for in the blood of Jesus Christ himself. One glance at that and no one says, oh, wait a minute, that person has to, you know, hasn't quite satisfied God yet. That person needs to work out a bargain with God and tell God he'll try harder and do better. No. We who love God and are pardoned by him should, of course, want to do his works and will do things that please him. But it's not doing those things that pays for anything or that gets us 10 feet across the Grand Canyon. Our role is to believe and trust in what Christ has done. Grace alone, Christ alone, faith alone. Resting in what God has done. That's the transaction of justification. You come to a God, not a God of volcanic anger, you know, who thinks you're doing a nice job today and tomorrow might say, oh my goodness, look what you just did yesterday. You're not in my good graces anymore. That's not the Bible's God. The Bible's God looks upon a child who trusts in the work of Jesus Christ, paid in full, 
and says, welcome before me, child of mine, adopted in my family. I rejoice in you. Yes, I see the mess you made. You didn't do so well there, but you're just as paid for today as you were yesterday. And that brings us to the conclusion here that shows not a question but a statement in verses 25 and 26 that tell us that God remains today both just and the one who justifies. You see, nothing but God's own genius could ever figure this out or offer it this way. We would have had a God that required something, and somebody else over here, some mythical hero, would have to come in and provide what the God wanted. That's not the Bible. What God requires, God supplies. He is just and the one who justifies He required of people like Moses and the people of the Old Testament that they be justified. And verse 25 says he left their sins unpunished. He overlooked them. It seems like, what was he doing? Suspending the rules? How could he, you know, how could he let them get by? Well, because he was looking forward to the payment that would work retroactively for them just as much as it works forward for you the payment of Christ at his cross that would complete the transaction of justification. Psalm 85.10 describes that accomplishment and says, love and faithfulness met together, righteousness and peace kissed each other. That's what happened at the cross. And it covered Moses, it covered Abraham, it covered David, it covered Sarah, it covered Ruth, it covered the apostle Paul, It covers me and you. God's transaction to be just and the one who justifies is offered you by faith in Jesus Christ. Are you justified? Do you know you're justified? Do you, like Martin Luther, see how revolutionary this concept is from any mode or idea of salvation where you just keep striving and striving and trying harder and thinking, maybe I'll achieve it tomorrow. I haven't achieved it yet. Luther, I love, you know, some of his phrasing is wonderful. When he was a monk, he once testified, or after his conversion, he said, if, if anyone by being a monk, he said, if anyone by monkery, in other words, the things that monks do, can please God, I determined it would be me. And his monkery wore him out. And he was under deep conviction, and he said, I haven't gotten anywhere. I'm trying to leap the Grand Canyon, and I keep falling in. Being a monk doesn't do it. Reading the Bible doesn't do it. Praying a lot doesn't do it. Justification by the grace of God in Jesus Christ by faith, that does it. Isn't it amazing that Christianity came to a place by the early 1500s where that was lost? Where almost nobody knew it. Listen, if you think that's fantastic, we've got guys in Washington that have never read the Constitution. So if you think you can lose something vital, just look there. But here is this great salvation. And the church, the official church, fought Luther and Calvin tooth and nail. We won't listen to that. Well, it's in the word of God. We won't listen. Well, it's right here in Romans. We won't listen. And they wouldn't listen. You're going to hear tonight from Dr. Nichols about Zwingli, who died for this truth. 
But you know, there isn't a Christian who understands biblical salvation who shouldn't read this passage and say, look, Paul's great indictment here that leaves you at 320, silent before God, absolutely guilty, unable to defend yourself. For me, I say, yes, that was me. But look at what 21 says. But the greatest turnaround word in the whole world. But now a righteousness from God is revealed that is in Jesus Christ by faith. The Reformation 495 years ago stirred and exploded and changed the entire Western world. People stopped stumbling in such darkness. The lights came on. The word of God opened up to them. And God's true gospel was preached as the Reformation recovered justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Those words might as well have been printed on a banner that went up a thousand flagpoles all over Europe. Picture every, every church and community where this was discovered, running the banner up the pole, justification, the salvation that only God does. The banner went up the pole. And you and I need to understand that banner and what it said and pray to God that it may long wave above people who know what the gospel is all about. Our Father, we thank you for brave, wise people who weren't wise in themselves. Your spirit certainly brought that movement. Your spirit awakened Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and Knox and Wycliffe and Tyndale and so many others. You did that thing because you will not allow your church to disappear from the earth, even when she's engulfed by falsehood even when the church itself fights the truth. I thank you for that note of hope for us in this day. Father, make us people who would give anything for this truth because it has done everything for us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.